Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for, uh, thank you that you speak, that you have spoken and your word is recorded for us in this book. We ask now as we study it that you would uh, cause us to hear and to understand such that we would be people of the book and that we would know the power of these words, the power of this word, that we would be defined by those who listen to you. And we ask this for your glory. Amen. Well, what is it to be one of God's people? What is it that is distinctive? If I asked you about it, we had a a number of different answers handed out there and perhaps you might have your own. It was a question that Israel had to wrestle with. If you remember last week, we got to the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, the wall had been rebuilt. So those who'd been in exile for generations had gotten to come back and rebuild parts of the city, particularly the defences in the wall. The wall had now been complete and we read at the end of chapter 7, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, along with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in their own towns. Israel has returned. But they're left with that question, who are we? Think for a moment about your grandparents. Maybe your great-grandparents. I knew a little bit of my grandparents, but my great-grandparents, what did they believe? What did your great-grandparents practice? I I don't know. Imagine Israel having been carted off into exile for generations now. No scriptures, no easy access to the Bible, no church, no gathering, no fellowship, no festivals, no opportunity to practice their religion. Who are we? And who is this God that we are supposed to believe in? Now, as we get to chapter 8 in Nehemiah, the answer is given very quickly. And and in, in one sense, this is kind of the sermon given to you straight up the top. But here it is. This is what they turn to. Who are we? Who is our God? Well, this is what the people did. Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to read through the chapter again, so worth having that handy. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns... All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They came back together. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book. Bring out the book of the law of Moses, which God had commanded for Israel. They all gather and what they demanded, this wasn't the leaders coming, all right, you lot, you better sit down and listen. The people gathered and they said, bring out the book. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. It was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand and he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate. And just in case you missed it, everyone's there in the presence of the men, the women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Men, women, children, oldies, anyone and everyone who could understand was there. And I take it that they're seeking spiritual renewal. They are seeking to be reforged once again into the people of God. And they turn to the book, listening for six straight hours. And they got both 
a sermon and Bible study, I take it, or perhaps a reading and then Bible study. It's not just about hearing the book read. It's not a religious ritual. I mean, you could imagine Israel, you could well forgive them for just wanting to go through the motions. They've done it plenty of times before. It's not just about being there when the Bible was read. It was about hearing and understanding what is being read. I don't know what you set out to do when you come to church. I really hope that it's not just a case of I'm sitting in the pew while it all happens around me and I've done my religious duty, I can go home happy. No, the people listened and understand down in verse 7. The Levites, all of them, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law, making it clear or translating it and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read gathered together, the congregation around the Word of God, being taught the Word of God. And both big church and small church, there's the big gathering as it's read, and then the little individual groups as they're being taught by the Levites. Now this is something we're going to have to keep getting better at. We're not too bad at it, but big church and little church. Under God, as we keep growing, the, the gathering will keep getting bigger and it will make certain things hard. We don't have the opportunity to engage with each other and wrestle and share. I mean, it was great to be able to share a little bit together. but And so we need to learn to do small church well in the midst of big church. That's why we keep banging on about our Bible study groups. If you haven't caught on yet, that we think they're very important. Anyway, the Levites teach, the people hear, and as they hear the word, it leads them to worship. Not the book. They are the people of the book, but they're not worshipping the book. They're worshipping the one the book points to. Verse 6, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Sydney Anglicans have been accused of being very intellectual. I don't know if you've ever heard uh, this particular church ever described as a teaching church. I haven't heard it about this one yet. I have heard it of ones in the past, but we're getting there. We're working towards it. Right? We're too intellectual. It's all about the brain and not about the heart. It's all about this book. It's all about study. And In fact, I've heard it said that for us, the Holy Trinity, instead of being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. And yet it is right to be people of the book. It is right to be people of the book in which the word of God is recorded. We don't worship the book. We worship the one who speaks in it. The people of God are people of the book. And there's a very simple reason for it. The reason is God has spoken. God has spoken. And here is his word. During the week, uh, I met a couple, uh, they're migrants. Uh, I've changed their names for the sake of privacy, but uh, let's call them Juan and Maria, and you can probably guess what part of the world they're from. Uh, And we we got chatting about things, and I was there with another guy who's just an absolute gun at God kind of talk, and before you knew it, he'd asked them about salvation, and we're talking about God and religion and all these sorts of things. And I had a moment just to chat with Juan for a bit on my own. Uh, Maria doesn't stop talking, so it's not a conversation, it's just a monologue. So we, we, had, we kind of divide and conquer and chat with, with Juan for a while. And, and he was telling me about 
Religion, right? He says, I love, I love religion. I'm sure that there's something out there, right? You, you look at the, the complexity of the human body. You look at the marvel that is the world. There must be, call it, call it God if you like, there must be something out there. He says, and I just, I just love trying to find out more about him. And so I, I listen to everyone who wants to meet and tell me I've got all the religious books on my bookshelf. I, I just, I explore and I try and work out who this is. He says, the only people I don't have time for are the people who say that there's only one way. I thought, oh, okay, we, we might have some problems here. Um, uh, we'll, we'll come back to that one. I'll let, I'll let Jesus tell you that later. I said to him a little bit later in the conversation, you know, you, you're convinced that there's this being out there. What would happen if one day he spoke to you? I mean, you're so busy trying to work him out. You're so busy trying to decipher who he is. What happens if one day he speaks to you? Well, then all the uncertainty, all this discussion, all this, it it, it goes, it evaporates. The word that he speaks becomes what we need to know, becomes sufficient. Imagine for a moment an angel appeared, right? Great big kind of thing, right? Holy and flames, and and then we're all kind of like, right? There's this thing, and it's just. And he says, You, you have been chosen. You have been chosen for part two. (laughs) What do we say to him? No, thanks. No, no thanks. We, we have all we need. We have what is sufficient. And not sufficient in that sense of, oh, it's just, it's just kind of barely enough. Right? You, you've got a sufficient mark. No, sufficient in the sense of complete, perfect. All that you need is here. We are people of the book. The people of God have always been that. Israel, they were people of the book. At this moment of rediscovery and spiritual renewal, they turned to the book of Moses. Jesus was a man of the book. You ever realised how often when he's teaching, what he teaches is the words of the Old Testament? He opened the scroll of Isaiah and he sat down and he teached. He was walking along with his disciples and he showed them from the prophets and from Moses all the things concerning himself. Even as he's writing the book, he is still himself. A man of the book. The early church were people of the book. They gave their time over to the apostles' teaching. You and I, God's people today, are still people of the book because God has spoken. Now, by way of application today, really, I'm just going to give you a series of prayers that I hope will inform your prayer life. And here's the first one from today. Give me hunger for your word. Give me hunger for your word. It's going to get hot today, isn't it? It was probably going to be pretty hot for them as they stood for six hours, listening attentively, because they were hungry to hear God. Well, the people of God are people of the book. And we are people of the book Because it is truly a book of power. A book of great, great power. Who's seen the movie uh, Book of Eli? 
Anyone? You guys must like it because okay. If you haven't, watch it. Uh, it's fantastic. It's, it is a bit violent. Okay, I'm, it's a bit gory. Okay, you, you, warning. Uh, there's a little bit of language. Okay, so just right. But it's a cool movie. Uh, it's, it's, it's a dystopian future. Uh, the sun has heated up too much. And so we're, we're, we're in this world that's just been scorched. The land has been scorched and we're kind of back to medieval times where there's just tribal groups gathered with modern guns and all the rest of it, right? And there's this one guy, Eli, who's travelling through this wasteland. For 30 years now, he has been journeying. He has this journey. He has a book that he needs to get somewhere. There's this one of the one of the local uh, warlords who rules over this township is desperately searching for a book, not just any book. He sends his thugs out and they have instructions. Anytime you find a book, bring it back. And so they keep bringing it back, and he's looking through it, going, "No, this isn't it, and no, this isn't it, this isn't the one. I'm looking for a specific book." And one of his one of his henchmen, his two I see at one point, says, "Why do you care so much about this book?" You're, you're, just, you're wasting our resources trying to find this book. And this is what he says. He says, it's not a book. It's a weapon. A weapon aimed right at the hearts and the minds of the weak and the desperate. It will give us control of them. If we want to rule more than one small town, we have to have it. People will come from all over. They'll do exactly what I tell them if the words are from the book. It's happened before. It'll happen again. All we need is the book. Now, in case you missed it, the book is the Bible. It's okay. You, you find that out fairly early on. And gee, he's got it wrong, hasn't he? I mean, it's, it's a weapon that's going to give me control over people. I mean, it's just it's not what it is. But he's also gotten it so very right. For the book, the Word of God truly does pierce right to the soul and heart and mind of the weak and the desperate and the needy and the longing and the lost and the broken and the wicked and the evil and the dying and you and me. It really is a sword that divides. It really is God exposing who we are and who he is. It really is a book of power. This book brings with it three things at least that we see in this passage. The first that it brings with it is sorrow. The book that brings sorrow. Verse 9. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, This day is sacred to the Lord. Don't mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the Lord. The book does pierce. Israel heard... And wept. Not I think it's tears of joy at rediscovery. It's not them going, hooray, we're all back into our... No, they're mourning. Their sin is presented before them. They are being exposed before God. You can't read this book. You can't hear the word of God without having yourself exposed. Naked. There is nothing that happens in your life, that God does not know of, that his word will not expose. And so this book brings sorrow because it shows us that we are sinful and wicked and evil and deserving of condemnation. 
Now, I'm not saying that every time you read the Bible, you've got to cry. That's not, what, not the point of this sermon. But when was the last time you did? Has the Bible lost its power to move me? I think when it's new, it's much easier. When, when your sin is still raw and the old ways are still present and the Word of God comes with such clarity and power as well as the grace and mercy. And to be found a sinner. And then it gets a bit old and we kind of get accustomed to it and it just washes over us. And I already know that bit. Right? I, don't, I don't have to let it sink into my life again, do I? Here's a second prayer. Keep my heart soft to your word. Keep my heart soft to your word. It's a book that brings sorrow. It's a book that brings joy. Right, verse 9 again, Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra are there, they're instructing the people, this day is sacred to the Lord, don't mourn or weep. Verse 10, Nehemiah said, go, enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord, don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Israelites calmed the people, saying, be still, this is a sacred day, don't grieve. And so the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions of food, to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. So this book is a book that pierces, but even as it pierces, it brings with it all sorts of promise and joy, all sorts of salvation, restoration, forgiveness, mercy, God's patience, God's promise. There are some people who struggle to hear anything positive. Do you know anyone like that? They can be telling you about the best thing in the world that's just happened to them and yet it's gonna, you know that it's going to end with but and then something's just going to make it all horrible, right? And it doesn't matter what positive thing you try and tell them, they're just not going to hear it. Well, this book brings with it great joy. God does humble, but God also lifts up. Israel was living through fulfillment of promise. They, they got to be the people out of generations. They got to be the ones who got to go back to Israel to have God's promises fulfilled. We live in a time of promises being fulfilled. All of the promises find their yes in Jesus in whom we are hidden. Allow the wonder of the gospel to wash over you. I don't know how you, how you preach the gospel to yourself. right? John 3.16 is the easiest one to preach to yourself. God so loved the world. God so loved me. God so loved you. He gave his only son so that you, by believing in him, might have eternal life. I remember Romans 8. Maybe that's how you preach the gospel to yourself. We saw last term. God is working for the good of those who love him and keep his commandments. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who could possibly separate us from the love of God? The Word teaches us who we are. The Word teaches us who our God is. You are a loved child of God's. And so 
this word brings great joy. Did you notice verse 12? They rejoice because they understood the words. I mean, the wall being complete, I'm sure that made them happy, but their joy came from the word understood. Here's the third prayer. Lift me by your word. Lift me by your word. The book brings sorrow, the book brings joy, the book brings obedience. All right, verse 13, let's, let's read on through to the end. See how they rediscover and obey. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra to give attention to the words of the law. They found, written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, go out into the hill, bring back branches, make booths. So the people went out, brought back branches, built themselves booths on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, in the squares. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first to the last, they read from the law of God, they celebrated the feast. On the eighth day, there was an assembly. They heard, they rediscovered, and they obeyed. It's, it's a very strange, it's very intriguing. They'd completely forgotten about this part of being God's people. And they're reading the law and they go, oh, we're supposed to go and live in tents. Well, we'd better go do it then, hadn't we? And so they go out and they find branches and they come back home to their newly finished building homes with their lovely wall and just put up some branches next to it and live there. A festival that was a reminder to them that they were travellers, foreigners, sojourners, aliens. Even now, even in this walled city that they just settled in, Still remember, if they were travellers, so are we. The land we look forward to is the heavenly land. They heard and they obeyed. Jerusalem was not their final destination. You know, chatting with, uh, with, with Juan and Maria this week, uh, I, I did have a bit of a conversation with Maria as well. And she was telling me about their move from where they came. They came from South America, in case you couldn't guess. Uh, they moved from South America. And she said, Australia is heaven. I mean, she, she was just telling us about how good their life is, the opportunities their son has had, and how he's now so successful because of the wealth, the prosperity, the freedom, the government, the opportunities. Australia is heaven, she said. And that's why Australians don't believe in God. That's me, not her. That's why we don't believe in heaven. Because where could there possibly be that's any better than where we are right now? You could have forgiven Israel for thinking that. We're in our walled city. We're back in Jerusalem. Ezra's about to begin to rebuild the temple. Let's go and sleep for a week in a tent to remind us. This book brings obedience. That's why it's so important that we study it diligently, daily, together and alone. They'd forgotten about a whole festival. In fact, other parts of Israel, they forgot about the Passover. I mean, you just, what have we forgotten? What have we missed? We need each other and we need the word. A fourth prayer. Make my will obedient to your word. 
Who are you? What is, it, what is distinctive about you being one of the people of God? I take it that we too are to be people of the book. And I commend to you these prayers. Give me hunger for your word. Keep my heart soft to your word. Lift me up by your word. Make my will obedient to your word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Israel, for their example to us. We thank you for your son and his example to us. We thank you for the early church, their example to us. Father, make us people of the word, people of the book. Please give us hunger. Help us to never take it for granted and we're sorry that so often as we just get accustomed to it and familiar parts wash over us, it can be so easy to treat it as an intellectual exercise. Father, help us to work hard at listening and understanding that your word may show us the reality of ourselves, sinners in desperate need of salvation. Father, show us by your word the reality of your Son, the Saviour, who lifts and who heals, who forgives, who dies in our place. Teach us the joy of knowing your salvation. And so, Father, as we know ourselves to be yours, purchased at a price, teach us then to obey. Bend our wills, Father, contrary to yours as they are, that we may pursue that which brings you joy and you glory. Amen.